to turn your attention this morning to Psalm 119, and we're going to read and look at one of the uh, eight-verse stanzas of this uh, massive and uh, very important psalm. Psalm 119, and we're going to read from verse 25 to verse 32. This is the Word of God. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I'm sure many of you have heard the, the phrase, or perhaps you have even used it to somebody else, get a life. It's normally used in a sort of a derisory way of somebody who seems to be totally preoccupied and absorbed with things that are of utter irrelevance or things of great trivial. They immerse themselves in some uh, amazing statistics, perhaps, that are of interest to about one in every 10,000 people or of interest to uh, a very small group of people and you want to say to them, do something more important and interesting with your life. Get a life. Now, while I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, have heard or used that phrase, I'm fairly sure also that you've never heard it linked with this phrase, get a life, read the Bible. In fact, it would seem to many people that's almost a contradiction in terms. How can you get a life by immersing yourself in a book that was written so many years ago. And yet the great contention of the psalmist, particularly in Psalm 119, is that life, real life, is a life that is lived by the power of the Word of God and a life that is lived in the power of the Word of God. And indeed the psalmist would say, outside of that, there is actually no real life. In fact, the psalmist would only have one prescription for you. If you want to get a life... Get a life in the Word and by the Word. Now, Psalm 119 is written by a man. We don't know who it was. It could have been Ezra or uh, Nehemiah or David, perhaps, one or two other possibilities. But whoever it was, it was a man with a one-track mind. All he thought about, all he was absorbed about was the Scriptures. In this colossal psalm of 176 verses, there are only six verses where the Word of God is not specifically referred to, and even then it is alluded to in different ways. This psalm is all about the Word of God. It brings to us different facets and aspects and attributes of the Word of God, and again and again is a challenge to the people of God to love the Word, to learn the Word, and above all, to live the Word. And I wanted to focus this morning on these eight verses we read from verse 25, which speak to us particularly about the life-giving, life-sustaining power of the Word of God. 
My friends, perhaps some of us are so familiar with the Scriptures and with the Word of God that we've almost become familiar uh, and, and therefore desensitized to the uniqueness of this book. Of all the millions of books ever written in the history of mankind, this book stands unique and alone. Because this book, unlike any other book ever written, is a living book. This book is dynamic. This book gives life to people. This book sustains the life of people. This book preserves the life of people. And as I've already said, outside of this book, the Bible would say there is no life. The only way to get a life is to encounter the living God through the pages of Scripture. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, said the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me. It has hands, it takes hold of me. Charles Spurgeon said, there is only one book that can comfort our heart and bring encouragement to our souls. All other books in the world are dead books. Dr. Stephen Lawson of Alabama, who we had the privilege of having at a conference at the college over this last week, says, when I read the Bible, the Bible reads me. That's the unique nature and power of the Word of God. And I want you to notice a prayer that the psalmist prays in these verses, one of a number of prayers he prays in this eight-verse section. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Here's the first prayer. Give me life according to your word. Now, this is quite a frequent prayer in Psalm 119. In one way or another, it comes about 11 times in this psalm. And out of those 11 occasions, seven of them are directly related to the word of God. Like here, give me life according to your word. Give me life according to your promise. The psalmist knows that if he's going to know renewed spiritual life and energy and strength, it will come in direct proportion to his experience of and his engagement with the Word of God. He doesn't just say to God, give me life. He says, give me life according to your Word. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're a believer this morning, the only way you will know fresh measures and increased measures of strength and life and spiritual vitality is in direct proportion to the amount of time you spend in the Word of God. There's no shortcut. There's no quick fix. There's no way to get to know God and know fresh spiritual energy and strength by somehow leaving your Bible aside and finding some other course. I also want to say to you this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I want to say to you this morning that the only way to discover the truths about God, the only way to come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is to encounter Him as you find Him in the Word of God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And I find in these verses, the psalmist speaks right into situations that will be familiar to all of us probably within this gathering this morning. See, one of the thrilling things about the Word of God is that whatever our situation, whatever our circumstances, we will find something that connects with us in the pages of God's Word, even the bad things in life. As I read these verses 25 to 32, I find a man who is experiencing the same hardships and knocks and trials that you and I face every day in life. These verses are full of pain and anguish and suffering. See, at the moment he writes this, he's enduring great spiritual anguish, emotional torment, even depression. And one of the ways he deals with this is by recalling 
ways in the past when he spoke to God and God met with him and dealt with him. I want you to notice a word that occurs five times in these eight verses that sums up the, the heart of this section. Look at verse 25. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 29, put false ways far from me. Verse 30, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. And then verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I want us to think this morning about ways. I want us to think about life's ways, about God's ways, about false ways, and about new ways. First of all, life's ways. When I told of my ways, says the psalmist in verse 26. In other words, when I cried out to you and explained my predicament, you answered me. And the reason is this, that for believers, as well as for non-believers, but especially the psalmist has in mind those who are followers of the Lord Jesus, life is sometimes difficult and sometimes, let's be honest, almost too hard to bear. Look at verse 25 again. My soul clings to the dust. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. I want you to understand the word pictures that the psalmist is painting here. In verse 25, the word that's translated in our English language as cling to the dust is the word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 about the cleaving between a man and a woman in marriage. It's the Hebrew word dorbak. And it means to cling to or to stick to or to be glued to with such an intensity and such a sense of union that it becomes one with the thing it is clinging to. So it is very difficult to tell where the join is. You can't see where one stops and the other begins. You see the intensity of this man's experience. My soul clings to the dust. What a graphic picture of deep spiritual, emotional and spiritual depression. The psalmist says, I feel like dirt. I'm stuck to the ground with a crushing weight of trouble and grief. I'm crushed. I'm devastated. I'm discouraged. I'm glued to the ground. I can't get up again. I'm powerless. Does that ring a bell with anybody here this morning? Maybe under the veneer of the cheerfulness you've put on even to be in here in church this morning. That's how you feel or you've known times like that in your life. The utter weight of grief and anxiety and depression just bearing down on you like a ton of rocks. Look at the other picture he paints in verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. The word Hebrew word here is the word dolaf. It occurs only three times in the whole Bible. Once here, once in the book of Job in chapter 16 and once in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Job used it to speak of weeping eyes. Ecclesiastes used it to speak of a leaking roof. And the idea here is of something dripping, dripping away, gradually pouring out. So the idea here, the psalmist says, my soul is so tormented and so anguished and so weak, it just feels as if it's slowly dripping away. There's no strength, there's no life, there's no substance there. He says, I'm in meltdown. I'm so overcome with grief and despair that I feel my soul is being poured out and is dripping away. I was recently reading a, a biography of uh, George Whitfield, of John Wesley, sorry. 
And uh, some of you all know that John Wesley and George Whitfield were great friends, but also uh, had some major differences on doctrinal and spiritual issues, had long times of fairly serious debate with one another about which view was right. This became quite a public issue and caused quite difficult, some difficulty among them, uh, between them. But at the heart of their relationship was a great love for one another and a respect for one another. And one day John Wesley wrote to his great friend John Whitfield in the midst of one of these great public debates. And he says this, ex uh, expressing his own heart. He says, my heart in the midst of my body is like melted wax. That's what the psalmist is saying here. My friends, I want to say to you this morning that spiritual and emotional depression and discouragement can be as intense and as crippling and as life-draining as this. The causes are numerous. There are too many to list this morning. Let me suggest one or two of them from the very context of this psalm. First of all, there's opposition that comes for the sake of the gospel. This, for this psalmist, standing for Christ and for the faith, his faithfulness to the word was a matter of life and death. Go back a couple of verses to verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. There are people in the higher echelons of power who are gathering together to plot this man's downfall. A quarter of the verses of Psalm 119 refer to persecution and trouble and the distress that comes to believers for the sake of the gospel. We've become almost immune in our protected Western society from spiritual persecution of any real intensity. And yet that is the norm for so many believers around the world today and perhaps for you today. In your place of work, in your neighborhood, perhaps even in your family, perhaps among those whom you love the most and are closest to, all you get is opposition and, uh, and attack because of your faithfulness to the gospel. And it wears you down. It makes you feel a bit like this man. Ground in the dust. I suspect it's a little bit like being bullied at school. My younger son is uh, probably the most laid-back person I have, uh, I've ever met, I've ever known. But he endured several months at school a number of years ago, constantly being verbally bullied. It became intense. We didn't understand what was going on. We had him at the doctors. We had him at the opticians. We had him at everybody we could try and work out to find out what was the problem. It became clear to us one day when my wife picked him up at school and he had a black eye. He coped with that much better than he had the previous six months of verbal bullying. He was physically unwell. There was no evident cause for it. His eyes were sunken. His spirit was low. One day he walked home five miles just to get away from the constant torment of the bullies. I think he would understand what the psalmist is talking about. Maybe you do this morning. Opposition that comes for the sake of the gospel in your place of work. You name the name of Christ. You live a life that is upright and blameless. Stands out like a sore thumb. People don't like that. It brings trouble and difficulty. There's internal spiritual warfare that comes to the believer as we seek to walk faithfully to the Lord. My friends, I don't know about you, but there are times when the constant battle and struggle with sin and temptation and defeat and apparent spiritual failure makes me feel pretty close to this. Look how the psalmist puts it in verse 5. Here's the longing of the psalmist. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. But as he testifies in the very last verse of the psalm, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. 
Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Here's the great irony and the battle that you and I who are Christians face every day of our Christian lives. The more we walk with the Lord, there should be a decreasing presence of sin, but an increasing awareness of sin in our lives. If you've been a believer for two years or five years or ten years, there should be much less sin in your life now than there was at the beginning, but you should have a greater sensitivity to sin than you had then. And it causes grief and anguish. The Apostle Paul says, the, the good that I would do, that I do not do. That which I would not do, that I find myself doing. Oh, who will rescue me? You never felt like that? You never felt like the psalmist at times where it's just not worth going on? The battle is too intense. The pain is too great. The difficulties are, are, are too severe. You feel as if you're clinging to the dust. You feel as if your soul is melted in meltdown. There's a third potential cause. Zeal for the Lord. Enthusiasm for the Lord. That may sound a strange one, but I believe it's true. Look at this psalmist's experience. Come with me to verse 126. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Here's a man who is zealous for the the holiness of God and the commandments of the Lord, and when he sees the Lord's laws being broken and trampled upon, it causes him grief. Look at verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Verse 139. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Verse 158. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. It's a note that ramps up and intensifies as this psalm goes on. He is a man that is so consumed with a desire for the glory of God and is jealous for the word of God that every time he sees it being uh, sitting very lightly by and people tra uh, trampling on it and, and trespassing against it, it causes him pain. One of the difficulties I find in the culture in which we live is that we become immune. We hear the Lord's name being taken in vain and it doesn't even register. Never mind pain us. We need to be like the psalmist and ask the Lord to help us nurture and develop a spirit within us that will be painfully sensitive to the holiness and the glory of God. You know, the Apostle Paul, I think, knew more than most about the sort of thing the psalmist was speaking about here. Just turn with me for a moment to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 8 to 10. Paul, as he evaluates his ministry and his experience, he says, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul says, every day, and the sense of the original language there is, every day I'm crushed, uh, sorry, afflicted, every day I'm perplexed, every day I'm persecuted, every day I'm uh, forsaken, every day I'm carrying around in my body the death of Jesus, and literally it's not the death of Jesus, it's the dying of Jesus. The death would be a relief. This is, a, this is an, a, an unceasing, constant process. I feel as if that I'm dying. For Paul, that was a 24-7 experience. 
buffeting, afflictions, persecution, misunderstanding, destitution, mistreatment. He would know what the psalmist is talking about. My friend, the psalmist here is specifically referring to those things that come to those who are the Lord's people. Who, because we live in a fallen world that hates God and the things of God, turns its anger and vents its spleen on those who identify with Christ and seek to live a blameless life in their midst. And I want to, before we go any further, I want to say a word of encouragement this morning if you're feeling like this or understand this. Such experiences should not undermine our faith. They ought to underline our faith. They are like that kite mark of authenticity. They are there to demonstrate the genuineness of our Christian experience. The reason that you feel like that, the reason that you are treated like that, is because you are seeking to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not for a moment belittling the pain or the intensity or the reality of these experiences. I'm simply saying we should not allow Satan to use them as a temptation to beat us up and say somehow I must be an imperfect Christian. There are plenty of false preachers out there who will say that if you're having troubles and having difficulties, it means that you're a pretty poor Christian. The Bible would say the opposite. But these things don't only come to those who are Christians. Depression, discouragement, sense of desolation, feeling like the psalmist said, clinging to the dust in spirit, in emotional meltdown, those are common to all people. Some of us are made that way so that our temperament and our personality is more disposed to being melancholic and depressive. And I want to say to you this morning that if you're not a Christian, if you don't name the name of Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you know experiences like this, they may be the very tools that God is using to draw you to Himself and make you realize your own weakness. Because the solution to this spiritual desolation, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever at this moment in time, is exactly the same. Get a life according to the Word of God. That's what the psalmist prays. I'm in meltdown. I'm, I'm one with the dust. I can't get up. The weight of depression is so crippling me at the moment. What does he say? Direct me to my local counselor. Send me to my local self-help group to sort myself out. No. He says, give me life according to your Word. See, life's ways are tough. But the solution to the toughness of life's ways are found in God's Word. My friends, I could take you through many references in this psalm where this is exactly what this psalmist says. Give me life. Strengthen me according to your Word. See, the renewing ministry of God to the, to the believer's heart does not happen in a vacuum. It always, always, always happens through the ministry of the Word of God. My friends, I cannot for the life of me understand why a Christian would ever go to a non-Christian counselor. The Word of God is sufficient. Paul says to Timothy, everything we need for coming to faith in Christ and living godly, Christ-centered lives is found somewhere within the pages of Holy Scripture. Everything we need. And when we go to those who aren't believers, 
and ask them to try and help and sort out our emotional or our life problems, what we're actually saying to God is this, God, thank you for your word, but it's not enough. I need something more, something more relevant, something more up to date. But the word of God, all of the word of God, is profitable. It is useful for every part of our Christian lives. Our problem is that we don't know the Word of God well enough, so we don't know where to turn when we need it. And the only answer the psalmist understands for experiences like this is to allow the Word of God to come and minister to us again. To sit under the Word of God, to open the pages of the Word of God, because it's the ministry of the Word of God to revitalize and to renew and refresh. This is almost a commentary, you remember, on Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. My friends, have you never known times when you've been down in the dumps spiritually? You've just been at a low ebb, maybe not this intense, but you've just been flat. And almost out of a sense of duty, you've picked up your Bible, or you've gone to a Bible study, you've gone to church, and you've just listened to and soaked in the Word of God. And as it's done that, you've felt renewal and refreshment and revitalization come into your soul. It's the ministry of the Word of God. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens through the pages of Scripture. But I hear you say, what about those times when you are so glued to the dust, when your soul is in such degree of meltdown that you can't even open the Word of God, you can't read the Word of God, you can't concentrate on the things of God like that? Well, my friends, then I would suggest to you, you, ha you have a solution. If you've already got God's Word prized and stored up in your heart, if you've memorized Scripture, you can bring it back to your mind and allow it to, to heal and revive you. Or get someone to read the Scriptures to you. Or play a CD of a recording of the Word of God. But find some way to allow the Word of God to engage with your troubled soul. The point I'm trying to make this morning is that whatever the circumstance of life, especially in the most intense, depressed situations, the solution is always the Word of God. It baffles me, it grieves me at my better moments, how easily we who claim to be evangelical Christians pay so little attention to the Word of God, especially in times of need. Life's ways. The second thing the psalmist speaks here about is God's ways. Look at verse 26 and 27. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He says it again at the end of verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. See, what the psalmist is saying here is this. In times in the past when I felt like this and I've been through experiences like this, I've turned to you, I've cried to you, I've told you my ways, and you've answered me. Now do it again. But do it as you open my mind and my heart and my eyes to the Word of God. Help me to take in the Word of God. Because I want you to notice that the psalmist here doesn't say, I want to understand the Word of God. He says, teach me. He knows that he is utterly dependent on God by his Holy Spirit to open up the words of Scripture and make them plain and apply them to his heart. Teach me your statutes, he says in verse 26. Teach me your law, he says in verse 29. And countless other times in this wonderful psalm. Let me just say a couple of words about the centrality of the Word of God in the believer's life. 
I believe this is one of the areas that is most under attack today. Sadly, from even within the evangelical church. Let me say, first of all, that God has ordained it that He will, in the normal experiences of life, communicate with us in His Word, and everything we need for saving faith and godly living is contained here somewhere. In that sense, God has nothing more to say. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to us. Thank God He does. I hope you came to church this morning expecting, hoping that God was going to speak. I hope when you read, open your Bible in your living room or in your, your place of quiet devotion, you do so expecting God to speak. The point I'm trying to say is that when God speaks to us, He simply gives us fresh insights into something He's already told us. I was struck recently doing some studies in the Old Testament prophets. When you look at all the oracles and the prophetic utterances of the prophets, you discover that they actually say very little original. Most of their ministry is taken up with reminding God's people of what God had previously said and then interpreting it and applying it in their present situation. And when God speaks to us today, that's exactly what He does. His Holy Spirit comes alongside us and through Bible teachers and preachers in the normal course of events, He simply reminds us of what's there and interprets it and applies it into our present situation. My friend, we're not to be looking for new revelations. We're not to be looking for new words of prophecy. We're not to be looking for new words of wisdom. Everything we need is here. And the very act of asking God or seeking some fresh revelation is an insult to God who has given us His Word. Let me say this, I believe if somehow the roof of this building was to open this morning, the clouds were to part, heaven was to open, and we would audibly hear the voice of the living God this morning, He would say nothing that He has not already said in His Bible. He needs to say nothing that He has already, hasn't already said in His Bible. And the act of going to God and asking for fresh revelation is not a mark of Christian maturity, it's a mark of unbelief and rebellion against God. Our spirit needs to be like that of the psalmist, which says, teach me your statutes, open my eyes to what you've already revealed, and give me understanding of these things, so that I might bring my life into conformity with it. God's ways are laid out for us in the Word of God. Our problem is not looking for some new teaching. Our problem is get our lives in line with what God has already told us. But my friends, here's the nub of the problem. We live in a generation, certainly in this culture, that is perhaps more biblically illiterate than we have ever been. And we don't know our Bibles. The man who wrote this psalm, you only have to read it once or twice and you'll notice here's a man who knows the scriptures inside out. Here's a man who's saturated. Here's a man that if he was cut, as it was once said of John Bunyan, he would bleed the Bible because his life is so steeped in it. And many of the problems we face and bring upon ourselves in our Christian lives are directly connected to the fact that we don't know, we don't read, we don't learn, we don't love, we don't live the Word of God. Life's ways, God's ways, that leads us to the third way, which is the false ways the psalmist speaks about. See what he says in verse 29? He says, put false ways far from me 
and graciously teach me your law. My friends, this is a prayer of repentance and of consecration. The psalmist says, I long for greater spiritual understanding. I long for spiritual enlightenment. So I bring my, myself before God and I ask you to search me and expose any false way and sinful behavior within me. Put false ways far from me. How can I possibly understand the Word of God, never mind live the Word of God, if I'm living in known sin, if there's unconfessed rebellion and disobedience in my life? You see, the prayer for spiritual understanding has to go hand in hand with this prayer. Teach me your statutes, but also put false ways far from me. Because when I continue in sin and living in a way that is incompatible with God and, and contrary to the Word of God, what I do is I blur my vision. I dull my spiritual understanding so I can hear the truth and it can be as plain as A, B, C, but because my mind is not perfectly pure, I will not understand it. That's that, why some of us have had that wonderful experience when we, we've sat under the Word of God or we've heard it taught or explained maybe for years and we just could never get our head around it. We can't grasp it. We can't make sense of it. And then the moment we convert it, it's as if all the lights come on. How could I not have seen this before? And the reason is that at that moment of conversion, our eyes were washed clean, our minds were made clear. Now we can understand what was staring us in the face all the time. That's why, my friend, when you share the gospel with a non-Christian friend, it doesn't matter how simple you make it, it doesn't matter how passionate you do it, unless God comes by His regenerating, enlightening Holy Spirit, they'll never understand it. Somebody once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why I, I, they will not understand the gospel. I've made it as clear as A, B, C. Spurgeon said the problem is they are D, E, F. See, as long, as, uh, alongside our earnest explanation of the gospel, we need to be praying, Lord, open the blind eyes. My friends, that's not just a prayer for unbelievers. You and I who are believers need to pray that prayer regularly. I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And I can pick up the Word of God and I can read it and it'll just be words on a page. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here in this great gathering this morning. And you're a believer. But you know, and you don't need anybody else to tell you, let alone the Word of God, that there are things in your life at the moment that you're hanging on to that you know to be wrong. There's a relationship that's inappropriate for a believer. There's a habit that you're involved in that you're so grateful that perhaps no other human being knows about, but you know that God knows. You know there's sin in your life in one thought or another. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll know that you have become dull to hearing the word of God. You need to pray with the psalmist this morning. Put false ways far from me as you teach me your law. This is the prayer of David in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And we need the Lord to do that for us because we are so self-justifying, so self-deceiving. Lord, show me the worst of my case. Don't let me do it myself. Don't let me rely on my own self-examination. You come by the blaze of your Holy Spirit, penetrate into every dark corner and recess and nook and cranny of my complicated being and bring out anything and everything that is false and wrong and displeasing to you. Show me the worst of my case. And as by God's Holy Spirit we're enabled to recognize and identify and acknowledge and deal with 
false ways, we come to the new ways the psalmist speaks about. See what he says in verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. He says in verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. These aren't new in the sense of newly invented, they're newly discovered. There's a new emphasis, there's a new vitality, there's a new energy in the psalmist's commitment to the Word of God here. My friends, I want you to come with me very quickly as we draw this to a close, to notice the steps that the psalmist is taking here, to come back to it after time of backsliding and disobedience to God, but there are also the steps a man or woman needs to take when they first come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we need to choose the right way. I put false ways far from me. I set your rules before me. In other words, what he's saying here is I take the Word of God and all the commandments and all the rules and regulations and the way that you've ordained for me and I set it before me as a template. And from this moment on, I commit myself to living according to this roadmap. This is now the framework. These are the tracks by which I'm now going to go down. I've put false ways far from me. I've renounced sin and disobedience and ungodliness and all those things. And now I set your rules before me. And I do so with utter dedication. I choose this path. My friends, let me say, nobody ever stumbles into the Christian life. Nobody ever, ever stumbles out of backsliding and disobedience. It's a point of choice and decision. You may be a believer here this morning, but have been living a mediocre, backslidden life for months, perhaps years, even decades. You will never simply stumble out of it. You need to take a stand one day and say, I choose to set your rules before me. Put false ways far from me. And if you're a believer this morning and you've been living like that, I call on you to do that even this morning. Even as you hear the word of God being taught. This is the day you need to put false ways far from you. This is the day you need to set the rules of God before you. And my friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, however interested or knowledgeable you may be about the things of God, I want to say to you this morning, you don't simply drift into a commitment with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't simply wake up one morning and find, oh boy, I'm a believer this morning. It doesn't happen. There has to be that act of will. There has to be that moment of choice and selection. There has to be that moment when you say, I put false ways far from me, false being everything that is contrary to the Word of God. I set your rules before me. This is the map by which I'm now going to live. And I call on you today to make today the day of that choice, the day of that decision. You need to choose the right way. Secondly, with the psalmist, you need to stick to the right way. You need to conform to the right way. You need to examine your life and bring it into detailed conformity with the Word of God. I want you to notice what the psalmist says in verse 31. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Go back to verse 25. It's exactly the same word that's used in the original. My soul clings to the dust. I cling to your testimonies. What's happened in the space of eight verses? He's had a, a fresh, life-changing encounter with the Word of God. And now he's identifying himself with the Word of God as closely and as intimately as he previously had with the dirt. A few verses before, you couldn't tell where he stopped and the dirt ended. Now, says the psalmist, you can't see the join between me and your Word. So closely am I committed to it. You know the irony and tragedy about so many evangelical Christian believers? is that our commitment to the Word of God is half-hearted. It's spasmodic. 
it's convenient. When it suits us, we stick to it. When it doesn't suit us, we side it. We need to stick to the right way. We need to cling to the right way. We need to cleave to it. We need to be as intimately and closely united to this as this word implies. It must be the thing that directs and dictates and demands everything I do in my life from that moment of choice and decision onwards. We need to cling to the right way. And fourth, thirdly, we need to run in the right way. Look at verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I want you to notice the transformation that has taken place in the space of eight verses in this psalm. Look at the psalmist in verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Here he is despairing of life itself. Here he is one with the dirt. Here he is weighed down under the mountain of spiritual and emotional depression and despair and discouragement. He hasn't got the energy to pick himself up off the ground. Where is he in verse 32? I will run in the way of your commandments. There's an enthusiasm, there's an energy, there's a vitality because he now is going to renew his commitment to the Word of God and give himself unsparingly to conformity to the Word of God. What's happened in that time? His circumstances haven't changed. The princes are still plotting against him. His zeal for the Lord still consumes him. Outwardly, nothing's changed. What has changed is he has a fresh encounter of God through the pages of Scripture. God has come to him and opened up his heart to the statutes. God has made his word come alive to his heart. And this man has a whole fresh transfusion of spiritual life. But notice the qualification he makes. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. One of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians is we make all our, new, our, our resolutions. We say, God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And we attempt to do it in our own strength and by our own power. And then we wonder why a few yards down the line or a few days down the line we've completely blown it and we're back on our faces. This psalmist is not self-confident. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments when or as you enlarge my heart. In other words, as you increase my capacity for spiritual obedience. See, just as you will need greater physical capacity to run a marathon rather than go for a walk around the block, so you will need greater spiritual lung capacity to cling to the testimonies of the Lord and not continually fall flat on your face as has been our past experience. For most of us, the Christian life is like a casual walk around the block. Someone says, no, I want to run a marathon. I want to, I'm in this for the long run. I want to be in it when my knees are giving way. I want to be in it for the last ounce of breath in my body, but I can only do that if you give me the spiritual capacity to do it. Perhaps you're saying to me this morning, I've had so many ups and downs in the Christian life. I've made so many spiritual comebacks. How do I know this is any different? Well, I want to suggest to you that your previous spiritual comebacks were comebacks in your own strength and in your own energy and by your own resolution. They may even have been somewhat half-hearted. But I want to, on the authority of God's word this morning, say to you, if you say with the psalmist, I put false ways far from me. I said your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. I will run in the way of your commandments. I believe that God will honor his word and he will come by his Holy Spirit and he will give you such capacity to obey and conform to his word such as you've never known before. 
I'm not saying for a moment you'll never have a bad day. I'm not saying for a moment you'll never fall by the wayside again. I'm not saying for a moment you'll never sin again. That would be foolish and stupid. But I believe if you come to God and say, God, with all my heart I want to do this, but my heart is so small, make me able as well as willing. He's in the business of doing exactly that. And I plead with you, I beg with you this morning, if you're a believer, be walking in mediocrity with the Lord, walking in known sin. Today, put false ways far from you. Set God's rules before you. Cling to His testimonies. Run in the way of God's commandments. But all of it, do it, Lord, enlarge my heart. my friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I don't know how much you know or know about the things of God. I don't know why you're here particularly. You may call yourself spiritual or religious or whatever else. But the truth be told, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, as your personal Savior. You don't know the reconciling with God that comes through the death of Christ on the cross. You don't know the forgiveness of your sins. You don't know the guarantee of a place in heaven at the end of this life. I want to tell you this morning that this is exactly and only what you have to do. You have to come to God and say, God, I put false ways far from me. I repent of and I renounce every sin and disobedience and act of ungodliness and the whole way of my life that leads me in that way. I put it for me. I take your rules and I set them as the roadmap for my life and I resolve today that with your strength I'm going to live like that. And I will do that as you enlarge my heart. And the moment of that prayer, God promises that by His Holy Spirit, comes and takes residence within the life of a man, a woman, and young person, and empowers them to live a supernatural, Christ-centered, Bible-based, God-glorifying, heaven-oriented life. That's the promise of the Word of God. We've all got a choice to make about which ways we go. The Bible would call you this morning, put false ways far from you. Set God's ways before you. Run in his ways as he enlarges your heart.